VIP podcast. My name is Jeremy Harrison, and I will be your host for this episode. Our topic today is private equity as it applies to intellectual property, and I've invited Walter Grolich of Amberjack Capital to join me to discuss all stages of private equity and how companies funded through private equity can improve and leverage their intellectual property. And now here's my conversation with Walter. I'm pleased to have with me today Walter Grolich. He is general counsel and head of intellectual property at Amberjack Capital. Walter is in, has, has an interesting career path. He started his career as a mechanical engineer, and while working as an engineer during the day, he attended law school at night. Upon graduating law school, Walter worked for a law firm as an intellectual property attorney. And when there was an opportunity to be part of a startup company, he left that law firm to start that company. And eventually that company was purchased by a larger company, and Walter went into the private equity sector at Amberjack Capital, where he's at now. Uh, Walter's got a unique skill set that includes engineering, law, and business. That's one of the reasons I wanted to have him on the podcast. Uh, I've invited Walter today to, to discuss intellectual property in the context of private equity. This is indeed a, a very interesting topic for companies since IP can affect private equity at different stages, including when buying a company, owning the company, selling the company. And, and private equity can also be very influential in, in helping a business grow. And uh, with that, Walter, uh, let's get into it. Um, for, first off, as we uh, start, for the benefit of our listeners, can you give us a brief explanation of what private equity is. Sure. No, absolutely. So private equity is an area of the finance industry that involves investment firms making investments in private companies. In other words, it's it's like a partnership between a private equity firm and a business owner to build companies that create value. At Amberjack, there's basically three different target markets that we have. Uh, one is industrial products and services. The second is infrastructure products and services. And the third is environmental products and services. So from an IP perspective, what, what are the different stages of private equity? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's basically three different stages that may be involved when the, from a private equity perspective. Stage one is when you buy a company, you do due diligence to see what type of IP is owned by the target company. Stage two is when you own the company, you know, you grow that IP to create value in that company. And then stage three is when you sell the company, you want to be able to present the IP in a manner such that the next owners can build and improve upon that IP at that company. Right. I think it's beneficial for our listeners to go through each of these stages separately. So can you start us off? What happens in stage one when you're buying a company from a from a private equity standpoint? Yeah, that's a great question as well. So yeah, this is where the exciting works begins, right? Because you want to do some IP due diligence. And during that stage of IP due diligence, you know, we start looking at the copies of agreements that that convey intellectual property from one party to another party. Yeah, we, we look at the list of, of U.S. and foreign patents that the company may own. You know, that, that list could include patent numbers, issue dates, inventors, title, even when the maintenance fees are paid. Uh, and, and in regards to the maintenance fee, that's a key part of the due diligence, too, to make sure that these are paid. In the U.S., you know, there's three different time slots, but in the foreign patents, there's uh, sometimes yearly maintenance fees, and if they're not paid, then perhaps the value of that IP is not there. The other thing that we look at is the list of the company products that are sold in view of the patents that they have. So the other thing we look at is the demand letters that the company may have sent out regarding infringement of their property, intellectual property. 
And you know, a lot of times you look at that to see what type of not only protecting their IP from a commercial side, but also preventing others from making it. And the other thing that we look at is the demand letters that the company may have received from a real or alleged infringement by a third party uh, intellectual property rights. Right. So this process is more about valuation. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you're considering in due diligence. Is there an area, Walter, that's uh, sometimes overlooked? Yeah, no, that's that's right. There, There is one area that potentially people overlook, and, and, and it's getting into the weeds. And, and what I mean by that is it's important for a company that is considering buying another company to review the claims of those issued patents owned by that company in view of the product sold. So yeah, depending on the size of the patent portfolio, this process could take a, a while to do because you want to understand the claims and the details of those claims in view of the commercial product. And, and a lot of times it's a, it's a process where you, you talk to the engineering department to understand the product, and, and, and then you go and you review the claims, and then you go back to the engineering department to make sure that you understand the big picture view of how these actual intellectual property assets cover the commercial embodiments sold by the tool. Yeah. So I've gone over in my person, in my, my lifetime as an attorney, I've gone over uh, some due diligence projects and I've got my own opinions on this. I'm interested in what you think. How do you know if you have any weak patents at a company that you're looking at? What, what, what constitutes a weak patent? So, so a weak patent is, is something that's determined by an intellectual property attorney when they look at a claim. And what I mean by that is, you know, if there's claim limitations that are part of like an independent claim, for for example, are you know that, that aren't needed or they can be easily designed around, that would constitute a weak patent in my mind. Because if you have an IP patent application or a patent itself with the claims there, if there's ways to get around those claims, there may not be as much value there. Yeah, superfluous limitations and. Yeah, I, I'm a firm believer that uh, if you've got enough disclosure in an application, you can you can get anything allowed, any patent right, allowed. Right. You right. just dump anything you need into the claims, and eventually an examiner is going to throw their hands in the air and say, "Yep, there's no way I can get I I, can, I can't reject this one. You've got too many limitations." Mm-hmm. So weak patent. It's about the same what I feel. You know, if there's stuff in there that doesn't need to be in there, it doesn't reflect properly the current product that you have. Right. So is it a deal breaker, Walter? If you find that um, you know, patents are weak or useless. It, it depends. Like if if the main company is based upon those patents, and you find that those patents are weak, it potentially could be. But a lot of times, there's more to a company than just their IP assets, and therefore, if they have weak patents, it would be more of a value of that of a company that may go down. Uh, you know, that the purchase value. Yeah. Based on their not having covered their 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 IP uh, in their commercial tools. Yeah, so we're still in stage one here uh, buying the company. Do you have any advice for companies to try to make themselves more appealing to a private equity firm? Yeah, that's a great question. So, do, you're talking about the due diligence phase of it. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to patents, I mean that that could be, in my opinion, at least on my side, because I've done the due diligence for patents. A lot of times they're like, well, these patents don't even cover your products. Right, so do you right. have any advice uh, in, in that field to, to companies that are looking for private equity uh, support? Yes, I, I do. And, and one of the things that I like or, or you know, private equity would like in general is showing how 
maybe even a chart, you know, having the patent listed and then the, the tool that, that, that the patent covers and how they, how they interrelate. I mean, because when you buy a company, you want to make sure that there's value in that patent that covers that tool. And so one way is during the presentation side of things, yeah, presenting, this is our tool, this is our IP portfolio that includes patents and, and how they interrelate. Yeah, smart. All right, so let, let's move on. Let's switch gears to stage two, owning a company. What happens um, in your perspective during stage two? Yeah, stage two is where the interesting work begins. And there's basically three steps that, that you know, to build an innovative company from an IP perspective. The first step is education. The second step is to review the products and make sure the claims and, and IP relate to the commercial product. And the third step is to look at agreements. And we'll, we'll go into each one of those in more detail, but the education side of things in step one, yeah, it's, it's important to educate all levels of management about intellectual property. Yeah, that includes your C-suite, your CFO, CEO, maybe the COO, just to how intellectual property can add value to that company. And then you also need to educate your engineering department on how and when to file a patent application. These guys are the ones that come up with the new ideas. So it's important to educate, you know, when is appropriate time to file a patent application, move forward from there. And the third group of people that it's important to educate is your sales guys. Now, your sales guys, they're the main outward facing part of the company. And they interface with the customers. And a lot of times these customers have a problem. And if these sales guys don't have a solution, for example, like a tool that could solve that problem, they go back to the engineering group and say, look, this is our problem. This is how we, you know, uh, you know, how can we fix this? And the engineering group comes up with a solution to that problem. It's important to educate the sales guys not yeah. to convey that solution and until you actually have an IP patent application filed. Yeah, I'm a big believer in step one here, education. Our IP group here in Houston, we, we give patents 101 mm -hmm. uh, seminars or CLEs, if you will, to some of our, our, our smaller clients. The larger clients, they'll typically have an in-house patent uh, team that, that takes care of it, but smaller clients, it is vital that uh, the C-suite, like you said, engineers and the salespeople, they know what they have, uh, when, what, what they're dealing with, and they don't disclose it inadvertently, or they don't miss an opportunity to capitalize on it. So step exactly. one is important. Yeah, absolutely. And then step two would be related to the products itself. You want to make sure that the claims in the patent application protect what, you know, what we're trying to commercialize. And not only that, you know, the com current commercial product, but you also want to think futuristic. You want to look at potentially what could change down the road and make sure that that's in the patent application yeah. as well. The other thing to think about is like trade shows. You know, you want to make sure there's a provisional patent application filed before a product is disclosed in the public. So what what is your uh, fi your filing strategy? Do you, are you a believer in provisionals or would you just rather go for the full-blown non-provisional when you've got a, an upcoming trade show, some sort of a disclosure? That, that's a good question as well. And it, it all depends on the product. The way I look at it is if it's still in the development phase, I, I like filing provisional patent application because that gives us that 12 month window from that provisional to that non-provisional where we can, you know, develop that tool, 
And then when we convert that to that non-provisional, we can add all that information back into there and such that we have a non-provisional that's solid as well as some foreign filing. However, if the tool is completely done, you know, a non-provisional patent application would, would be uh, sufficient as well. That just allows us to, to have a more full-blown patent application that's on file. You start the examination clock ticking a little bit earlier. Provisionals have, have a time and a place, in my opinion. Uh, non-provisionals are, are where, where the, the real bread and butter is. Uh, right. So exactly. good. All right. How about step three? So step three is, is the agreements. And, and you know, it's a lot of times I think people uh, overlook this, but there's different type of agreements that you want to consider and look at to make sure that they have an IP provision in there. Uh, for example, you have your NDAs or your non-disclosure agreements. So you have your joint venture agreements. Then you have your employment agreements. All three of those are important. And let me let me go a little bit detail on, on each one of them. For example, the NDA, the non-disclosure agreement. This is where a company, let's just say company A, is disclosing confidential information to company B. You want to make sure you have in your non-disclosure agreement that if there's confidential information that is related to a potential patent application, that's owned by company A. It, it doesn't transfer over to company B just because it's it's discussed. Right. So that's something to keep in mind when you go and you look at these non-disclosure agreements. Your joint venture agreements, you got two companies that are making things together. Best to have all that set up and who owns that IP, whether it be jointly or you know if, if it's assigned over to one party or one company, that needs to be defined. Yeah, and the joint venture agreement itself. Third one is an employment agreement. In this industry, uh, you know, private equity as well as many other companies, there's a lot of movement from employees going from one company to another. And, and it's, it's something where you know, for us, we define in the beginning when the employee is hired, you know, these are what happens with intellectual property that's developed here. And then when they leave the company, we remind them that any type of intellectual property that was developed during their employment at our company is owned by the company. Yeah, it's I, I've seen it uh, on a handful of occasions where employer employees will leave and, uh, you know, start using some trade secret information, you know, or otherwise intellectual property from the prior employer. And you go back to the, the agreements and there, there either is or is not specific provisions in there. So, Walter, my question is, how often do you recommend reviewing these internal agreements? Some that I've seen are, they look like they pulled them from legal zoom or something and, right. and they're right. missing right. key provisions. Yeah, yeah. For, for us, it's, it's good to review it every you know, two to three years. Uh, you know, and, and you do that for a couple of reasons. One is there may have been some changes to the company, you know, during that two year, two to three year time frame, or there may have been some changes in the law. Uh, you know, the, the law is constantly changing. Therefore, you want to make sure you have the most current information in, in agreements. Yeah, agreed. All right. So we've talked about at this point, stage stage one of buying the company, stage two, owning the company. Let's let's switch to the last stage, stage three. What happens when you are attempting to sell the company? Yeah, selling the company, that's when the presentation work begins, because, you know, it, it's something that could be different for every company. But the big picture view is. You want to be able to convey information on the intellectual property assets to the future buyer in an effective manner so, such that the future buyer can build and improve on that IP. Some, some examples could be is, you know, a list of the company products and the patents that those products cover, a list of the U.S. and foreign patents and 
companies that uh, you know that who who actually owns those. You know, if there's a third party that may own part of that, that all needs to be understood and conveyed to that third party. And then also the the intellectual agreement, property agreements that could convey intellectual property assets to a third party. That's important to to understand and present in a proper way during the sale process. Yeah. So in your position at the, the private equity firm, you were integrally involved in this. What can companies or yourself, what can you guys do to to make a company look more appealing to a potential acquisition entity? I think it's it's to, to do the work first. And what I mean by to do the work first is sometimes what I find is, you know, if it's a, if a company, they just show us the patents and they say, hey, these are our patents. And, and and these are these are our tools. You know, it's 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 up to the third party to to interrelate them. But the cleaner approach, in my opinion, is when you have like a perhaps a chart, right? You have a chart that lists the IP, and then you have on that same chart you have the product line that's covered by that IP. That's that's a good way to to explain to the future buyer that this is how we protected our IP. Yeah, and this is what you're getting. Another thing to think about is to convey to the future buyer that there's some additional IP that could be filed. You know, you, you could probably focus in on maybe some of the newer development parts of, right. of the actual tool and, you know, and, and say, look, this is something that's being developed now and these, you know, this could be protected. So you want to give that aspect as well when you do your presentation. Right. So you're presenting the company in its current form and what it could be, uh, the, the future of the company. That's great. Right. Good advice. All right, Walter, that, this has all been extremely interesting. Do you, do you have any final thoughts on IP and private equity? So in today's world, it is important to build high-performing, innovative companies that create enduring value. One way to build an innovative company is through private equity. Amberjack Capital is a private equity firm that has helped build a number of innovative companies over the years. Great. Well, Walter, thanks for your time today. It's been extremely helpful information uh, for companies that are interested in private equity and how IP can affect their company's growth. Uh, uh, we appreciate your insights, and I encourage our le- listeners to reach out to Walter if, you, if they have any questions about private equity. What's the what's the best way uh, for people to get a hold of you? There's two ways. Uh, you can do via LinkedIn. You can look me up right underneath Walter, and the last name is Grolich. It's G-R-O-L-L-I-T-S-C-H, or via email at walter at amberjackcapital.com. Well, thank you, Walter, again for your time, and uh, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you.